Now let's talk a little bit about the concept of modern versus old school controllers. What's your thinking around that? Do you have any kind of thoughts on the differences between the modern and old school controller? I'll be honest, I think the opinion of controllers is, well, we'll control the books. Don't ask me for advice on what's going on. I will just give you the data. You interpret the data and take it however you want it to. I can tell you this, that's not my motto. I've even got other friends in the industry. We don't think like that either. I don't think it's a fair opinion because you're basically saying, just give me the info and I'll take it from here. I will tell you this, I think every year there's more things added to a controller's role that you'll see out there and the expectations, for example, purchasing. Purchasing now has become a big critical piece of, can you control this function as well? Treasury has been added. So I think it's an ongoing role. Dollars. Dollars. Meaning you work with numbers? Oh, it's so much more than that. Modernization. By streamlining the process. So let's get right down to business. And modern problems require modern solutions. Elementary, my dear Holmes. Elementary. Consider it done. This is The Closers. This episode features an interview with Rohit Lalwani, financial controller at Blue Core. Now here's your host, M. Daigle, passionate revenue accountant, RevRec automation expert, and general manager of Zora Revenue. Welcome, Rohit. Thanks so much for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. So before we get down to business, would love to get to know you a little bit better, have our listeners get to know you. We're going to start the episode with our off the ledger segment to get to know you a little bit before we get down to business. So let's roll. So would love to jump in with a question around what kind of stereotype about working within the financial space do you feel that people have that just is not true? So it's a stereotype I actually try to push back on and I push back on my team. It's that we're not connected to the business, that we're so focused on just the numbers. But I think what people fail to realize is that the numbers tell the story. And if you can't tell the story, then you can't understand the business. So that's a stereotype, I think, specifically in accounting, that I really want people to know that you have to be connected to the business no matter where you are. I love that. And I love also that you recognize that because there are some folks that I speak to that know that it's something they need to work on, but it's something you've obviously mastered because it's so important to you. Another question that I ask every guest now is how you refer to the holistic revenue process. I've heard sort of every kind of answer that's kind of run the gamut here, but like, do you think of it as order to revenue, quote to cash, lead to reporting? How do you think of it or refer to it? To me, it's order to revenue. And the reason I think of it that, that way is it's it's not just focused on one area. And so your first process is the order comes in and your final piece is the revenue. I mean, you've got different facets like the billing process on it, how it's organized on frequency. So to me, and I'm biased obviously because I'm in tech, <laughs> but it's order to revenue. Love it. Straightforward, makes perfect sense. Now, one piece of feedback that I've gotten from our listeners is that they love to hear about where guests came from. Like, what's your career progression and what does that sort of story look like for you? Sure. So growing up in, in I went to Florida State University and our four classrooms were the big four accounting classrooms. And it just kind of <laughs> dictated that this is kind of where you needed to be. So I was a finance and accounting professional. I studied finance and accounting in, in college. 
I spent about nine plus years in public accounting. I think at the halfway point, I spoke to a partner and he stated, if you want to get out of public into something else, work an audit. And that's basically what I did. I didn't know if I wanted <laughs> to be there long term, but I did love the fact that I could learn various businesses very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so once I sort of got my stamp of approval as an audit manager working in New York, focusing on tech and startup companies, I got a phone call one night from a recruiter. It was 7.30 in the evening. I was already tired. And he <laughs> said, are you interested? Before I hung up, hung up the phone, I said, sure, let's hear it. And mm-hmm. that's how I got my start into the tech world, working at various tech companies and loving it, but also understanding that when you work in a startup slash mid-sized tech environment, you get exposure to a lot of things that you would not if you worked at a large national corporation. It's a really great point. You know, and it's funny, I had a similar progression, maybe different timelines but started in the audit space. And it's in, it is interesting what you said about you get to learn so many different businesses in such a short period of time. And there's a lot of expertise that you can kind of grab from that. Just working with different folks and in different industries even was really interesting to me and kind of actually formed where I wanted to go. Did you have something similar? Were you primarily working with high tech clients at the time? I think that's the beauty of it. Not only do you get different industries, you get different people. So you're on one engagement Mm -hmm. and you roll to another. Now, I know a lot of us in public accounting will complain about those years, but (laughs) I think the adaptability of saying you're working on this client and now you're Mm -hmm. on this type of client and you go from working with different people's point of views and and even, you know, their, their processes. And now you get to your own world and now you get that level of sustainability. You get a chance to kind of put your own staple on things. And so for me, when my first leadership role on a finance team, I was given the opportunity to say, great, go hire whoever you want and build this out from, from scratch. And I think the public accounting, even though I would say those are some of my tougher days, it helped, mm-hmm. <laughs> it helped help me from an organizational perspective, meaning whether I do accounting or something else down the line, I, it, it builds structure in me, which is what I needed initially in the early part of my career. Let's jump to the general ledger. Tell us a little bit about your current work. Where are you now and what does your role look like? Sure. I work at BlueCore, which is based out of New York, but now we've gone fully remote given given the pandemic. But after the pandemic, because our employees did such a great job, we said, well, why not open this up to to live wherever kind of where you want. So we're actually spread across 27 different states, all in the United States. We have a subsidiary in India as well. It is by far the funnest place I've ever worked at. And the reason I say that is there's a couple aspects to this. Obviously, you know, you want to make sure you're, you're compensated properly. You want to make sure the people you work with like being there, but marketing is kind of fun. If you work at a, you know, at a manufacturing company, or a different company, like it it depends on what they're manufacturing. If you're interested in it, it's great. We work with the top 1000 retailers with major brands. So it's kind of fun to see some of our imprint and some of their advertising and some of their reach outs to say, hey, wow, our business had an impact to it. It's fun. You get access to things that you see that like, you know, for example, if you were in a manufacturing company, you may not actually see your product out there, but we get a Mm -hmm. chance to see it. And I think that that makes this more of an interesting business in, in my opinion. So 
That's awesome. Now, curious, did COVID take you away from the New York area? Or are you still there? It did. Funny you asked that. So I had a friend <laughs> who was a doctor who called me and said, there's this thing called COVID coming. Jump on a flight tomorrow and just go back down to you know where, somewhere else. I said, mm-hmm. what do you mean? She's like, well, some, it's, it's coming, head down. So within three days, I was on a flight. I think it was only me and two other people on an entire United Airlines flight. And I thought, realistically, we'd be there for, I don't know, a month or so. And it ended up you know, being much longer. I think we all kind of had to deal with obstacles of Zoom and calls and different things like that. I do, personally, I would say I was against a remote kind of first environment initially. But mm-hmm. what I saw then is everyone adapting to it and it working for everybody. And personally, people just being happier because they, yeah. they, they were given that flexibility. I personally think people are working harder, to be honest with you. They're on longer mm-hmm. because I think people are trying to validate that the, this model works. I agree. And it's funny, you know, my commute went from anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours just because of the Boston traffic. You probably had traffic that you dealt with in New York City before. And now my commute is about a 15 second walk across my hallway (laughs) to my office. So there's certainly something to be said for that as well. So I don't have to spend all of that time away from my family or not working in a car or on a train. But now I can just either, you know, continue to work, be more productive or be with my family. But I'm assuming that's the same for you. That's exactly it. And I, I forget, failed to mention that I, I went back down to Florida because I'm from Florida. And oh. you have the, the options to go for a run in the morning. You have the option to make your own lunch. I think one of the biggest things is making your own meals, getting some of your stuff done, where I think some employers think, well, hey, are you, are you not working? Are you not working? Well, if you're in the office itself, you'd be at the water cooler. You'd still be getting snacks. Me, myself, personally, I hate to admit this, but like I'm probably on at 7.15, 7.30 in the morning because I'm not commuting and now I'm organizing for the day. But what does end up happening is around 4, 4.30, I'm kind of wiped out for the day because I've just kind of started earlier. But that hour and a half in the morning before everybody else jumps on is like like bliss for me to kind of set up my day. And so like you've adapted. And I kind of like I mentioned, I was not for this model initially. I don't know how people go back to... <laughs> I, I still question how I went to the office for five days a week for 15 years. I, I just can't comprehend it at this point anymore. I'm with you. Even just getting you know, my daughter to soccer or something. I don't know how I did it before. So grateful that we can just have Zoom you know, now on our phones or wherever we need to pick it up. So it's definitely helping with just everyday life. So I love that. Now let's talk a little bit about the concept of modern versus old school controllers. But what's your thinking around that? Do you have any kind of thoughts on the differences between the modern and old school controller? I'll be honest. I think the opinion of controllers is, well, we'll control the books. Don't ask me for advice on what's going on. I will just (laughs) give you the data. You interpret the data and take it however you want it to. I've also heard examples of, well, that's what kind of what our perception is of controllers. I can tell you this. That's not my motto. I've even got other friends in the industry. We don't think like that either. I don't think it's a fair opinion because you're basically saying, just give me the info and I'll take it from here. I will tell you this. I think every year there's more things added to a controller's role that you'll see out there. And the expectation, for example, purchasing. Purchasing now has become a big critical piece of, can you, you, know, can you control this function as well? Treasury has been added. So I think it's an ongoing role. I know... 
I did a presentation a couple a couple months ago, and a lot of people raised their hands and said, "I feel kind of stuck in my role. I don't know kind of how to you know to to kind of expand on this." And and so like you know, what are kind of some of the suggestions that you have? And I would say I would probably sit with your leadership to define what your role really is. To be honest with you, if your role is just putting the books together, there's not much opportunity there unless you have leadership who's willing to see what else you can do. But how are they supposed to see what else you can do unless you kind of approach that? That's a great point. Now, what do you think is something that gets in the way of accounting leaders who might be trying to transition into more of that modern approach? Certainly going and having the conversation is is a great point. But is there something specifically that you think that gets in their way? It's the work, right? So yeah. if you're doing the same thing over and over and it takes you 20 hours to do it, if you do that for three years, of course you're going to get burnt out and of course you're going to get bored and of course you're going to get frustrated. There's different tools that are coming out every day. I preach automation, automation, automation <laughs> to my team where if they're doing something for more than six hours, I actually tell them that's on you, not on us as an organization because find me solutions, find me options to make this better, improve the accuracy because your value is really not preparing a reconciliation for me, your value is analyzing it. And what I've seen from other organizations and other stories I've heard of, well, I couldn't look at this because it took me nine hours to put it together and it was already 6.30 at night and we had to close the books and I was already tired. Of course it is. Just me telling you that example, you already know that, that doesn't work. And so the value is, is you're freeing up your, your team's time to actually spend time analyzing what happened versus putting a wreck together. And I think just in what I just heard you say as well is your team must feel empowered to sort of take hold of their own destiny too, by putting it in their hands to say, if you're spending X number of hours, think about a better way to do it. You're not just saying, you know, go deal with it. It's sort of like, well, find a better way and, and having a discussion around that. So that must actually make them feel really empowered as well of their own, you know, how they spend their own time. Yeah, you might say empower, they might say he's a little annoying. And I think it's fair either <laughs> way because I I do make the, the, the statement when I meet with them, you know, is if something is taking you X amount of hours and you've been doing it for three months, that's not on the organization. That's on because we give you full access to go reach out and look for different ideas and tools. Mm -hmm. But what I do expect is an attempt or a solution. But if, if we're hitting the wall there, I will step in then and try to figure out what else can we do to make, because I also understand like nobody wants to do the same thing for three years. I don't even want to do the right. same thing for, for three days, let alone three yeah. years. <laughs> and the good talent out there wants to grow and they want to move forward. But if you're not giving them the opportunity to kind of see what they can do, one of the, one of the best pieces of advice I, I ever got from somebody was, you have no idea how, what someone can do until you actually give them the opportunity. And whether they're first, second year or 10 years. And, and not only that, you have to give them the time to do it too. If they don't have the proper mm -hmm. time to do it. Of course, you're going to get a result that doesn't work. So I just right. think like, I mean, we've talked about the, the whole process of what was done in the past just needs to be completely torn up. And I think you need automation and tools to help you out with that. 
Could not agree with you more on that point. Now, curious if that kind of plays into the next point that I wanted to ask you about. So I saw you on the Flowcast podcast, and you were talking about technology and the importance of work-life balance for the accounting team. And you clearly have some strong points there that I think our audience here would really benefit from. We know from so many accounting teams that, that they're behind on automation. So we did our state of revenue accounting report. And there's a whole section that we have that's focused on really how poor revenue processes can lead to poor mental health. So like something like nearly 60% of leaders reported that their revenue teams feel unfulfilled with their work and an even higher percentage that reported, you know, working past midnight and, and that sort of thing. So curious your thoughts on that and how you might think about introducing automation into those processes. Sure. So I'll kind of go back to my example of if you're working in a process that takes eight hours a day or eight hours every close. And for example, that's on a good day. You're already <laughs> setting yourself up to fail because at some point something's going to go out of whack. And if you're finishing at 531 on the dot the day before close, the process is just built incorrectly. Now, mm -hmm. revenue recognition is a critical element to all businesses, but I don't think somebody goes, Great job. You got the revenue addition right for the month. It's kind of the <laughs> expectation, right? What yeah. happens though a lot with the with finance and accounting, it's when something goes wrong, then all of a sudden everybody's eyes are all over it saying, What are we doing? How is this broken? And so to me it's the whole design aspect of it. You have to take the time, even if you are to get an automation tool, you have to segregate the time to spend to build it out properly. So perfect example. Leader says, great, let's spend X amount of money on the software. It's going to make our lives better. Your team already works till six o'clock every single day. Now you <laughs> want to add a tool. They have to do whatever they're existingly doing, which we already talked about is the arcane process and they're already working till late. Now you wanted to add a tool on top of that. So here's what happens. <laughs> Implementation doesn't go well. They're frustrated and angry because they'll work until nine or nine thirty. And what happens most of the times is they're only working on this implementation work at six o'clock after they've already worked on their regular work to do. Mm. Teams aren't built out properly. Time isn't committed to this. And now you have an implementation that takes three months, take one year. And probably half your team is probably gone at that point because they just don't want to. <laughs> and so that's why you see a lot of people looking for individuals who have done implementations. Why? Because everybody gets scared as soon as they see an implementation needs to be done. That means People go, that's double my work now all of a sudden. Right. So how do you think about that? Like, how do you get around that? Or how do you navigate through that when it happens within your team? So what I do is I basically chart out what I speak to them is tell me your day. And I honest conversation, like, how many hours are you fully engaged right now? 25, 30. And I will literally kind of make it fun and say, hey, why don't you take this project on by yourself? If you need help, let us know. But your day is now cut in half. And some of the stuff that you're doing, we're giving to somebody else. And you have full reign to kind of figure this out. Give us status updates. But I think you need to give someone accountability to say you're in charge of this versus the team, because it kind of gets convoluted again of who's doing what. Make realistic expectations of this is not done at 7 o'clock at night, but like at 9 o'clock in the morning, all you have to do is this implementation right here. Simplify the steps, come, spend time with them talking through the process. Managers also really need to be involved in the initial conversation of what it needs to look like. A lot mm -hmm. of the times I've seen they get involved at the end, 
and whoever the third-party software and your team, this is not what I was looking for. This is not what I was thinking. Well, you got too late involved in the process, and obviously this is the result of what happened. I personally put this on the managers enough of just, you've got to properly design this for your team to succeed. Otherwise, you'll have the same old story of a... a or, or the comment will be, well, the implementation didn't go well. I didn't like the software. Well, part of that is, is did you commit the time and resources to, to make sure it was done properly? Yeah, it's a great way to think about it. And I love that you think about it not as in the whole team should be involved in some way, shape or form. But I like the thought of freeing up a resource completely to dedicate their time to it. So that, A, as you mentioned, it's not something that they have to deal with at six or seven in the evening after their day job is done. But also what I think that does, and just having been involved in in a number of these, both on the implementation side and then also on the vendor side, but there's something to accounting teams having a regular close process that they need to adhere to and, and reporting needs to come out in a timely manner. When everybody's sort of working on that project together, the project slows down significantly at the end of each month or certainly at the end of each quarter as the team has to close out and do their reporting. But by having somebody dedicated to it, I really like that approach because it sort of frees up the business from having that potential slowdown throughout the year as they go through and can help keep the implementation going. So I really do like that approach a a lot. Curious if you've had trouble, but how you might help your team get buy-in for automation from either the CAO or the CFO, like I said, seems to be a challenge for quite a few or quite often. What is your sort of secret approach to, to how you can get them on board and help them support the investment in automation? So first, again, I'm going to say I'm biased because I work in tech and my <laughs> CFO has worked in numerous tech companies and she's super supportive of it. So I'm going to speak from a different viewpoint of let's say they're not. Yeah. Scare them. Scare (laughs) them on the what-ifs that could happen. The (laughs) what-ifs of if you do this manually, first off, guaranteed there's going to be make make mistakes because we're all human. Mm -hmm. Number two, at some point there's going to be turnover. And right now, if that happens, we have no way of potentially completing something because the whole process is manual. And then number three, which is a harder sell, go find the money in the budget. Like, go find it yourself. I think a lot of CFOs are instantly programmed to say, hey, not right now, or maybe not this. But I think if you're so close to your CFO, which you probably should be if you're working in the function under it, sell them on that and say, look, this is what I know we have in our budget. I'm going to use this tool for that. Instead of, hey, I like this tool. What do you think? Well, not interested right now. We'll look at it later. So scare them. But when you approach them, approach it proactively, like, you're another business function leader in marketing, like you're another business function leader in sales of we need this tool and this is the reason why. It's a fabulous point because I think just myself, somebody comes to me with a problem and they're just, I don't want to say dumping the problem, but just come with the problem. I sort of note it and might move on. But if somebody comes to me with a a challenge or a problem and then immediately offers a solution, even if it's not the right one, I can immediately appreciate that that person has given enough thought that there is something more. They've looked into it. And so it certainly makes the conversation a lot more reasonable to have. So I I really think that's a, a very valid approach that I don't think a lot of people 
think of, right? It's all information that is there. And while not everybody might have all of the detailed information behind what investment dollars have been set aside, it is at least easy enough to go in with a couple of ideas around where that might come from or what that might be put in like a priority list where that might fall. So it's a, it's a really interesting point you bring up there. Not one I've actually heard quite a bit, which is kind of funny. So you've been at BlueCore for about four years, maybe a little more. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, that's a healthy amount of time at a high tech company. Curious what kind of changes you've seen and been involved with since your time there at BlueCore. So the markets change too, right? For us, we're focusing on different type of e-commerce and, and large companies. This is around 2019, 2020. And what we're specifically doing is we're helping them personalize communication to their customers via email and now, you know, with an SMS as well. And so at that point, pre-COVID, you still had a decent amount of e-commerce, but a lot of people are still going to to shops and, and wanting to do some window shopping and look at different things. COVID hits. And like I said, <laughs> I think the companies were already ahead of it. We're already focusing on e-commerce, but COVID hit. And it only just kind of turbocharged the fact that you need to be in the e-commerce space in order for you to, to succeed as a business long-term because a lot of the, the different target audiences and the younger target audiences want communication through phone or through email. I'd say that I've got people that I know who refuse to go to a mall. They said, why would you go to a mall when I can order everything online, return everything in three days? And you know that, that it's, it's, the shopping environment is sort of changing. And so when COVID hit, you saw numerous different retail companies say, I want to focus on e-commerce. Now, some have pivoted back a little bit to stores, but not really. I mean, I think it's just a kind yeah. of a footprint in there. So you know, we saw explosive growth through there. And so for us, it grew the business. But again, to bring it back from a finance side, you've got to build for scalability. And if you're doing everything manually, you just need more people. It's just not the solution and the answer to this. So for us, it's always been about, I don't want to put things in place that we don't necessarily need. But mm -hmm. we always play the game of, and, and I'll, back to your, your other point, I'll always go to my team member and say, sell me. Sell me as yeah. to why you want this and pitch me like you want my buy-in. And I'm happy to go into the CFO room and say, I really need this and this is why. But if you can't sell me, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. And so on that aspect, I think, especially in tech, you have to be ready to change. I mean, tech can just change completely. And, and, and COVID is a perfect example of that. So you build different things in place to say, okay, if we doubled or tripled, how is our infrastructure? What would happen? And mm -hmm. if the answer is nothing would change, you smile and you go, all right, then, then we've done this the right way pretty much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, coming out of COVID, what are some of the big initiatives or top of mind items for you right now that you're kind of thinking about from a finance and accounting perspective? So I'll go the other way there. I think what's happened is as we come out of COVID, the role is changing, right? And mm -hmm. and honestly, I think this is my answer to just all roles, right? If they see you that you're interested in something or that you have expertise or knowledge or something, I may just be in controlling and or accounting, but because I spent time in public accounting, I know how to organize projects. I know how to deal with mm -hmm. operations because I, I may not know the, the subject to it, 
but I know how to set up some a model to be like, this is how you would structure this to right. make sure we don't have any errors. As far as coming out of COVID, I would say as the company grows, the function needs to be ahead of it. You don't grow two X or three X and go, oh, now we need to do all this. <laughs> you also don't scale too fast and put in software that's ridiculously expensive that may or may not be needed. So I think what's happened after COVID, I think I've taken more of a role to understanding what all the different products that we use and what, and what they offer us and really get an understanding of what does this really do? Not from a financial perspective, but like, how does this make your life really better? Explain that to me. And so I think a lot of people have gotten involved in the procurement role to understand why is this valuable versus now versus two years ago. Yeah. And curious how you think of that, if we can go like a step deeper. Did you look at it holistically and say, where do we spend the most amount of, say, human hours? Did you look at it and say, where do we have the biggest risk? Did you look at it and say, this is where we have the largest amount of errors already? How did you determine that maybe purchasing was sort of that one that you're going to dive into? I think you hit it all in the head. I mean, those are all important factors. Now, just because something is expensive doesn't mean it's great. It also doesn't mean that you don't need it. If you get rid of something that's expensive, but it's critical infrastructure that protects certain assets, I mean, there's a reason probably why that it's there. I think for me, it's understanding what value does this really provide? Because as an organization, you have numerous different tools that you use. And I think it's funny enough, you just can go by and someone's like, well, I don't use this. Do you use it? And then uh, I don't use this. Or why do you use this tool? Because we've been using it for four years. And so when you start asking those questions and you get those answers and you start going, nobody's using this or, or we're not using, or better question, better answer is we're not using it the way it was intended. We're using mm. 20% of it, but we could have been using more of it. So I think it's critical to not only for finance professionals, but everybody to have meetings with your vendors to be like, show me what this does and what I could be doing with it, which I think the better vendors will schedule quarterly meetings with you to say, this is what you could be doing and being proactive in, in, in some of those approaches. But I also think on the procurement side that yeah. a lot of the times now, it's not just buy-in from the department head. Finance is now being brought in to say, all right, talk to the finance team and see what they think, which I think is different than it was a couple of years ago. Hmm. All really interesting points. You know, I think there's something to be said for how the tool gets used. And the reason I say that is having been through some of these automation projects myself, I think you get to the, I'll say the end line, right? And you've gone through testing, you're just ready to make a go or no go decision. Everybody's ready to just turn it on and start using whatever that automation tool is. And sometimes the teams don't necessarily go through all of the points to understand how to use the tool or they know how to use it at a point in time when they go live. But to your point, like things are always changing, whether it's the industry is changing, the market is changing, the business is changing. There's a lot of different things. So that tool, which may have been intended for one purpose at one point in time, could actually shift and change. And so I think you bring up a really great point is it doesn't necessarily mean instantly rip and replace something. It could mean also looking at what you have and figuring out how you might be able to make it work for you today. And the answer might be, 
it doesn't, we do still have to look for something. Or it may be, gosh, we just didn't look at how we could have used this tool. It's almost a reevaluation of your current tool to figure out how you may be able to use it, especially if that particular vendor has gone through a lot of innovation since you bought it or since you implemented it. So I think that's a really, really interesting point that you bring up. I, I think one of those yeah. things of it's like, well, hey, what do you use? Well, HR uses this, but we use this. What is sales? <laughs> well, they use this. Oh, but I use this because everybody <laughs> has their own perspective. And mm -hmm. before you know it, not all of it, but 50% of the softwares do the same thing. But everyone has a personal preference because it's like, well, wait a minute. I've never used that. And I just want to use this where you kind of have to get push people to say, trust me, this is integrated for everybody. You're going to enjoy this a lot more. But I get people going, well, I've never used this for 15 years. And now you want me to use something <laughs> else. So, yes. And, and plus, you're signing off on it saying, trust me. But if it works, you'll look like a rock star. So. Yeah, exactly. Now, curious, because I know you're not the only one with that sort of situation. There's probably a lot of our listeners, too, that are in a similar situation. How do you navigate that if you have all of the different cross-functional teams with their favorite tool, if you will, or their desired application? How do you bring everybody together to sort of figure out what the primary tool should be or the primary solution would be to that? It's not easy. I'll tell you that right off the bat, <laughs> because once people are set in, in what they want to use, it becomes a little bit more challenging. I think the way you want to approach it is not, hey, I'm looking to get rid of your tool because I like my stuff better. I think you need to sit and I guarantee you'll get a couple eyebrows raised at you. of <laughs> Why are you asking me about this? And what are you trying to do? Because anyone, anyone talks to someone in finance and they're asking you about the software or something that you're using, their first reaction is, are you trying to cut this? And mm -hmm. <laughs> the answer is no, I'm just seeing kind of, and again, I think everyone knows their their audience and team better than, than others. So you kind of have to approach it that way. I think a lot of times it's getting the leadership involved to say, I'm coming this with ideas, not with decision-making to make changes. I, I'm just trying to get an understanding. I personally in the past blamed it on saying, hey, I'm a former auditor. This is just how I am. I spent time in audit. I'm just trying to understand it. That may work for some of the listeners out there. But I think if you can find a way to connect this to like, I'm trying to help the business and I'm trying to help you operationally. And if you're sensitive to that, I think they're more willing to listen, especially if you can find some type of solution that, and I'm just making an example up here, that consolidates everything they're doing yeah. that they didn't have to do. Again, we, we use a procurement tool where nobody, everybody was pushing back on initially because we were using something like Google Sheets and different things to, to do this. And <laughs> we've fully onboarded this now and it's just become a way of life at the company. Yeah. And there's something probably to bringing those teams along the way as well. You know, it kind of comes with the idea of change management. So anytime those cross-functional teams are maybe challenged initially, but not just challenged and then left out of the process. But if they're brought along for whether it's business requirements gathering or testing the design and build of, of whatever that, that automated process is, or even like we talked about the training and how to use that tool and so they can really understand the benefits to their teams as well. So, you know, it's really, it's interesting. Every time I have a guest on, it always sort of comes back to like working cross-functionally within the business. And this is yet another one that just sort of naturally has made its way back there. As we end here, I just wanted to think about the future of accounting. 
So Rohit, last question for you. What's the one mistake that you consistently see accounting teams making when it comes to automation processes, how they operate? What do you think is the thing that they are making the biggest mistake with? Feeling like you're going to lose before you even try (laughs) because of the expectation of software. This is going to take six months. This is going to take one year. This is going to add more work. I don't have time to do this. Why are they asking to do this? And so if you have that mindset and you're already struggling to where you're at, it's not going to get better. But I think that's where if you're going to potentially, and I think, again, this is more on the leadership of I want to make my team's life better. I like who I have, but I know working 50 hours a week is not sustainable and it Mm -hmm. doesn't help. And first of all, no one's learning anything if you're doing the same thing over and over. You have to find a way to, and, and I'll be specific on this. If your team is working 50 hours a week, you need to cut this to 35 and save five hours, 10 hours, so that you can show them, look, I've already given you an appetite of a little bit of freedom here. Now let's mm-hmm. add on projects. But if they're already overtaxed, you're, you're already going into this unsuccessful and they're not even going to you know, be, every time there's an implementation, you should explain the benefit and make them excited for it. But if they're already beaten down already, I mean, you've already got a loss on your hands. That's really astute and a, a great point. Something to have all leaders, you know, kind of be thinking about. You've got to support your teams and and really be the leader that's going to show them the way. So thank you so much for joining me today, Rohit. It's been a true pleasure chatting with you. And I look forward to having you back again. Thank you so much. This is great. And I appreciate you guys having me today. And listeners, my DMs are always open to you. Please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Links are in the show notes and stay tuned for more episodes and insights from other revenue and accounting leaders. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.